Hello and welcome to the Imagineer Podcast, your unofficial guide to all things Disney. I'm your host, Matthew Krull, and you're listening to episode 106 of the Imagineer Podcast. In today's episode, I have the pleasure of chatting with veteran Walt Disney Imagineer Theron Skies. Theron has an impressive career at Walt Disney Imagineering as an art director and creative portfolio executive working on a number of parks, not just here in the United States, but around the world. Theron worked at parks including Disneyland Paris, Hong Kong Disneyland, Disney's Hollywood Studios, and he had a key role in the transformation of downtown Disney into Disney Springs and concluded his career at Walt Disney Imagineering working with Disney Cruise Line. He has so many incredible stories to share. There were a couple of stories that Theron shared that I had never heard before. One about Tower of Terror in particular. I think you're really going to enjoy it. It was such a captivating story. And we talked a lot about the business side of Disney as well. How do you think about Imagineering, not just with an unlimited creative uh, blue sky budget, but bringing it practically back to creating smart decisions that benefit guests and Disney and other stakeholders in the company. So approaching things with a very balanced decision. The end of the episode, I'll come back and tell you a little bit more about how you can connect with the Imagineer podcast on all your favorite social media channels and how you can help to inspire and create the future of this show. So grab some headphones pull up your favorite armchair and enjoy this episode of the Imagineer podcast. My guest on the show today is veteran Walt Disney Imagineer Theron Skies. As an art director and creative portfolio executive, Theron's 23 years at Walt Disney Imagineering included work at Disney's Hollywood Studios and at the time Disney MGM Studios, Disneyland Paris, Hong Kong Disneyland, the reimagining of D- downtown Disney to Disney Springs and Disney Cruise Line. From Tower of Terror to the Disney Wonder and beyond, Theron's portfolio in themed entertainment is one that serves as an inspiration for aspiring designers, Imagineers, and honestly, anyone looking to turn a dream into a reality. Needless to say, I am incredibly excited and honored to welcome Theron Skies to Imagineer Podcast. Theron, welcome to the show. Hey, Matt, thanks so much for having me, you know, um, and you've interviewed quite a few Imagineers, you know, we love to talk about the industry and making magic. So uh, keeping it to an hour is probably going to be a challenge. <laughs> probably will. <laughs> and that's going to be my fault, too, because I love to talk about the subject as well. It started with reading books when I was younger and tr- looking at videos and anything I could find online as the uh, as YouTube emerged. And as we now get to as I now get to podcast and talk to those like you who got to build and support the magic, I always have a lot of questions to ask. So Fantastic. I, know, I know it'll be a fun discussion and I want to actually start with your, I like to start with origin stories. I find that I find that's a very uh, grounding way to relate to people who are in similar shoes now and in their origin story. So when did you first become interested in pursuing a career in a creative role? Well, I was going to try to make up something really cheeky, like gamma radiation was involved <laughs> or a spider bite, but unfortunately, nothing that cool. Um, I I knew I was um, artistically 
focused, I guess, as a, when I was a kid, I, I love to draw. I love, I draw, I drew everything. I built models, you know, um, my, uh, creative passion wasn't just in, you know, drawing and painting and sketching and that kind of thing. It was, it was literally in building. And I think I owe a lot of that to my upbringing. My dad was a builder and uh, from the youngest possible age, I, I started building with him, helping him and, and working with him. And I really think that that, that probably was the impetus because it's one part, you know, creative, you know, what if dreaming, uh, and the other part was actually putting it together. And um, sort of a seminal moment in my childhood was, uh, and this obviously talks about my age, in 1977, uh, I was 10 years old and Star Wars came out, right? And yeah. I went to the movies, oh my gosh, I don't know, two dozen times, something like that, just watching the movie over and over. And I was just totally in love. And I, and I just remember thinking, I don't know what that is, but I'm going to do that with my with my career. That's incredible. I uh, I didn't get the chance to see Star the first Star Wars in theaters, but going to see some of the other Star <laughs> Wars in theaters, I could uh, I could sense that. And that's a I find that a lot of the folks I talk to, they draw their inspiration from something early that they saw, whether it was visiting Disneyland or going to a local park or mm -hmm. if it even wasn't Disney, um, although most of the time it was Disney, or going to see a film and saying, that is right. what I want to do. So when did you first start to do that professionally? Well, I... When I saw Star Wars again, I thought it was motion picture industry, right? Making right. movies um, and building sets. And so I, I pursued that. I ended up in Orlando. Um, I was actually born in Orlando. I grew up out west in uh, the mountains of Glacier National Park in Montana. Wow. A uh, great place for a boy to grow up. Um, but came back to Orlando at sort of the start of what they called Hollywood East. It was you know, Universal Studios, Disney Studios was being built. And a lot of the film industry really was looking to move here. Miami was already a bit of a hub, so it wasn't that big of a stretch. <clears throat> Pardon me. And I was able to break in and I started in construction, which made perfect sense. So set building, mural painting, aging, graining, uh, set design, and, and kind of really cut my teeth in the industry uh, from a film and television perspective. And I, I really got to a point, you know, the kind of a crossroads um, on the movie Stargate, uh, we, I was in the desert for seven, six, seven weeks, sculpting, you know, these uh, Egyptian structures, and I just realized that it, it just, it just wasn't the right thing for me, you know. Um, family was at home, and and I enjoyed what I was doing, but you know, here at the end of production, everything gets taken apart and you know, recycled. Some stuff thrown in the garbage, some stuff sent back to the prop department. And nobody really got to see it. And you only got to see it through the lens of the camera. And uh, and I and I just felt like there needed to be more. And, and strangely, at the time, I didn't even think about theme parks. It wasn't even on my radar. And um, uh, I got hired by um, a, a former um, tree fab person from Epcot uh, by the name of John Symbold. And that was way back in the early um, days of Universal Studios Florida, I got hired there because I was a sculptor. I did big props and things for for movies. Um, and that's how, why I got hired for Stargate because everything was sculpted in foam. Well, they brought me on to do the rock work around the lagoon at Universal Studios Florida. And there I met uh, a gentleman by the name of Jolt 
Horme. And for those Disney fans that know Jolt, he's um, really been responsible for leading a lot of the massive sculptural efforts, uh, Tree of Life, the Caldera in Tokyo, um, Cadillac Range, you know, in California Adventure. I mean, just on and on and on. Amazing. Well, we met at Disney or we met at uh, Universal Studios uh, before either of us worked for Disney. He went to Paris uh, to build at the time it was Euro Disneyland. And um, I had just finished a production and he calls me and says, we really need help. Um, would you come to Paris? Uh, it was 91. And would you, you know, we need help in Pirates of the Caribbean. The whole thing is all rock work. Right. So I was like, Bob's your uncle. Uh, you know, let's do it. Fantastic. I'm on a plane. And um, it was crazy. 15, eight, you know, hours a day, seven days a week. And um, great experience. And that was my first time in the, in the themed entertainment industry. And um, uh, from there, I kind of got my foot in the door at Imagineering. And one thing led to another. I ended up back at Imagineering in 97, working here in Orlando. And that was at the Disney MGM Studios. We were completely redoing the back lot area because it was never, it's so funny. It was actually designed and built super authentically to be a real back lot set. <laughs> right. Um, and then you've, I'm sure you've heard the story, right? Capacity was, um, there was such a need for capacity at the studio park that they opened up the back lot to foot traffic. And the problem was, is all of these sets were foam. So you could walk right up and, you know, stick your <laughs> finger right through the building. So anyways, I was kind of brought on to help with, um, kind of keeping the magic of filmmaking, but doing it in a way that was much more durable. Uh, so that anyways, that was uh, my sort of start here in Orlando with that. That's amazing. And the fact that you got to travel to Paris, I know that a lot of folks that was their first even time overseas, uh, let alone living in another country. Right. Um, how did you adjust to to living in, in Paris at the time? Um, well, remember back in 91, Paris, there was no European Union, right? So it right. was it was the franc. And um, I always kind of, you know, frankly, it, it was <laughs> it was very, very different than it than the, than the France of today. Um, very, very different. Uh, um, it was I was so very busy. I honestly didn't really get to do much there. I mean, literally, I was in the the big dirt hole in uh, Adventureland. Um, that was, uh, I mean, I'm sorry. And um, uh, uh, yeah, in the Adventureland side, that was eventually going to be the, the Pirates Lagoon. And um, I mean, it was sun was down when it uh, wasn't even up yet when we went into the building. And then the sun was long down after we came out of the building. But uh, but my second um, tour, if you will, in Paris was very different. It was 0506 and um, stayed there to 2008. So it was a longer period of time. I was in a leadership role there, whereas in, in uh, I guess it was a leadership role in 91. It was field art direction. And um, uh, I led, I don't know, maybe 45 people uh, between welding crews and and plaster crews. And, and I was only 25. I was the youngest art director in the entire, you know, multi-billion dollar project there. Um, leading crews overseas, uh, everybody speaking a different language. So amazing. So fast forward to 2006, uh, going over in, uh, you know, sort of art director, creative director role for the um, Walt Disney Studios expansion was a very different experience there. Um, uh, they were already, what, 20 years or so, 15 years or something that the Disneyland had been open. So they, it was, you already had a whole infrastructure in place. It was a very different kind of experience. 
Yeah, I can I can see that being being true, and certainly France has evolved as a country, uh, changed in, it, with its <clears throat> entering the European Union, and and uh, you know even changing over the currency and little things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I could see that being the case. You know, I'm glad you brought up the the sort of title, uh, you know, art director or, or creative executive, because one of the parts of Imagineering I like to demystify a bit is you read that someone is an art director, you read someone's, a, a show, I think show writer is probably the most uh, obvious as to what that person does or a project right. manager. But how, how do you describe what an art director does? I know you did primarily rock work, especially with like Pirates of the Caribbean, but how do you describe what an art director does at Imagineering? Yeah, it's it, the titling uh, does get a little bit wacky there. Um, yeah. So before I talk about art director, I'll just give you a quick example. Like my my last title with the company was portfolio creative executive. So then I would you know go to business meetings in other countries. I'd hand my card. It says portfolio executive, and they would say, "Wow, I don't understand. Did I miss something? I thought you were into design and everything. Are you going to help me with my stocks? I mean, <laughs> I don't understand portfolio leader." So uh, we get a little, you know, internally wacky, I think, uh, with, the, with the terminology um, where internally it makes sense to us. But then when you hand that card externally, you know, it was really important, especially in Asia. People need to understand you're a vice president, that, that they are very uh, hierarchically f- uh, uh, focused. You know, that's their whole culture is that way. So you don't get the right level of respect or you don't get invited to the right meetings unless your title is obvious. So... Anyway, so I'll go back to art director. Art director has, um, like production designer, can be um, applied in a lot of different ways. So art director is quite literally the individual that is responsible for taking uh, the ideas, the designs, um, and the, the, the concepts, guiding the team um, to build them, to make them a reality. And that role really has a lot of flexibility. So the art director could be working, um, for example, as um, um, a local leader in the parks. So every single park, almost every property in the world has a an Imagineering team that stays with that property. We call them the local team. Um, the larger the property, you end up with an executive that's there. That executive is both creative uh, and, um, and functional leader in that space. Um, and then that team, again, that leader may have several individuals uh, working on the team. One of them might be an art director. In Florida, we have art directors at Epcot, Animal Kingdom, you know, all of the parks. And we have an art director over the water parks and that kind of thing. And that individual really is meant to be the um, the creative representative for all of the story information um, contained in that park, really the partner uh, for the operations teams, the variety of operations teams. And um, so that's kind of one application of an art director. Uh, At Disney Springs, I was the creative executive. I had two creative directors and an art director on my team, as well as a producer. Um, The art director uh, was sort of like, if you know anything about soccer, um, there's a a floater kind of role, right? That that, uh, floats back and forth and goes to where the sort of the action is. And the art director uh, kind of served that purpose on that project where, the individual was assigned to um, scopes of work, but then as needed, they could swing over and assist with um, load loads of work from the different creative directors who had 
multiple lands, multiple uh, scope in themselves. Um, so that's kind of how that works. There's also a version of an art director called a field art director. And that was the role that I, I mentioned that I served in at uh, Euro Disneyland Imagineering, um, now Disneyland Paris. Um, and then also my when I got my start here in Orlando, I was a field art director working at Disney MGM Studios. And that quite literally is just what it says. You know, you are an art director function, but you're in the field. You're literally taking the drawings, the designs, and you're working with all of the consultants, all of the, the crew members that are there to put all of that together. Yeah, it's amazing. I like to ask because there's always so many different roles in Imagineering. I, I spoke once with McNair Wilson and he mentioned that at one point they sat down and mapped out, and this was in the early 90s, that there were over 300, I think I might be misquoting, <laughs> but over 300 different roles at at Imagineering. And each one of those serves a very different function in the, in the team. And it is very much team sport. Um, I'm very much looking forward to talking about Disney Springs because I love that project. But I do want to jump back to when you worked at Disney MGM Studios, there was a in one of the YouTube videos that I that I watched. Um, which for those who are listening, I'm gonna I'm gonna link you to go to all these uh, incredible videos that Theron has. But uh, you did mention that um, when you were working at Disney MGM Studios as an Imagineer, it was also an education in how to operate a park. And you sort of mm. referenced the fact that a lot of people do start maybe by working in the parks and eventually right. make their way to Imagineering. So um, in that respect, what were some of the key takeaways that you learned about park operations while you were working in sort of this uh, field art director capacity? I'm so glad you picked up on that, honestly, <laughs> because I, I really do believe that in order to be uh, the best possible designer, within the theme entertainment industry, you really have to understand the operations. How, how is it delivered? I, I get the opportunity to, to, to uh, guest educate at a couple of different universities and uh, mentor students. And of course I have coaching and everything um, through my website that I offer to not just students, new professionals, but also to executives. I had a really great time coaching recently a president of a company who was looking to change uh, his business around. But what I usually say is that, you know, it's not about creating the thing, the park, the land, the hotel, the, the, the really cool water park attraction, um, that's only part of it, right? That actually has to drive a business. You know, when you when you get on a team and and uh, working for Universal Creative or Merlin or Imagineering, you're on a team, but you're actually working for the client. And the client is, in my case, was the Disney company. And they're looking to make a profit. They're looking to grow their brand. And the way that you can design the best, the way that you can achieve that objective is to understand that it's a business, to understand that that the frontline cast are your absolute best advocates and best tools to communicate the story, the design, the excitement, the, you know, the emotion of delivering the story of what we create goes through the cast first. So spending time with the cast members and getting them excited about, you know, their opening, uh, they're the opening team. And I, I say this in my course, you know, there's only one opening team. Right. So making that, <laughs> making that exciting for the cast members and really spending time communicating the story to them so that when they meet with guests, it's just this natural sort of outpouring of their role, but also their own excitement and passion. 
And I would have never really got that had I not worked at the Disney MGM Studios because my role in that art director role was a daily partnership with all of the operational businesses. Um, so many incredible veterans of the Disney company, um, even Imagineers, I'm thinking of not just operational, like George Caligridis, you know, or Dan Cockrell, you know, from an operations uh, leadership standpoint, but also, you know, a lot of my peers and, and uh, mentors in Imagineering all started in the parks, whether they're working in a magic shop or scooping ice cream or, or you know, any way um, on the ground working in the park system gives you the idea of how it works. And, and I kind of miss that, right? I came right out of film, right into Imagineering, and I, I miss that education. So working at eight was eight around eight years at um, uh, Disney MGM Studios really gave me that infrastructure and that understanding of how it works. Critical. Yeah, incredibly important. I agree. It goes back to I think Walt's philosophy of it. It takes people to make a, the dream a reality when it comes to the cast. And being a former cast member working on an attraction, I can say that it definitely, you know, we have to learn about how to deliver the story uh, that the yeah. Imagineers created and all it, every detail down to what your role is in telling it. And I think Disney has gotten even more advanced at creating these immersive stories with attractions. So, um, but you're we right, always, it is incredibly important. <laughs> Sorry, Matt, I was just no, going to no, say, say, you know, we always, uh, I always tried to, on all my projects to push for with the my operations partners to push for an event with the cast members really make it an event and um as imagineers i always knew that the cast members love that part the most right i mean they're going through the all very important right but they're going through the operations of it what happens when uh, the safety the legal you know the maintenance i mean there's so many things that a cast member has to know uh, including if there's a spiel or or something to, some you know, performance-based thing that you have to remember, it's a lot. It's a lot of transactional, functional, you know, four keys kind of thing. That's right. So we always tried to make the time with the Imagineers really fun and really exciting, and hopefully they all look forward to it. So that story moment, you know, really gets ingrained in them, and that's what they that's what they take to their interaction with guests. Yeah, so very true. Um, I can't imagine an event, an opening day event with Imagineering not being fun. It's it's a, it's a, <laughs> it's a big moment. It's a celebration. It's exciting. Um, there's a lot of, you know, some kinks to work out as you welcome guests for the first time, but it's always an exciting event for sure. Yeah. Um, Speaking of Disney MGM Studios, so one of the the projects I know you worked on, and I think this this transitions over to uh, to Disneyland Paris as well, is Tower of Terror, which is mm -hmm. one of the I think most, one of my favorites. <laughs> yeah, it's it's from an Imagineering perspective, one of the most ingenious attractions that has been created. Um, so, what was your role in in working on Tower of Terror? Well, the original tower at, uh, at Disney MGM Studios was uh, already built when right. I got there, right? And it was already functioning, super popular. Um, but marketing uh, kind of said, you know, we're looking to go back in and to see where we can, um, you know, revitalize, add new life to any of the existing attractions um, or shows or parades in our parks. And, and we, we do that frequently, right? We, we Imagineering would partner with a uh, various park leadership teams and and try to always breathe new magic into those types of things. So as we were brainstorming uh, Tower, 
we we had actually um, brought to the forefront, we Imagineering brought to the forefront that the ride system itself was inherently designed as reprogrammable for that purpose. So the original um, team that brought Tower to Life did so in a way that it could be uh, programmable. So we said, we pitched the idea, well, why don't we, why don't we mix up the experience? Why don't we really add a lot to it and really revitalize um, uh, that ride experience? The story itself doesn't have to change because in the Twilight Zone, I mean, we're kind of dealing with the paranormal. So right. anything is possible, anything. And, and we love the idea of telling a story with such a, um, a wide berth for us to be able to create within. And, um, and so we love that. So that was one of my uh, roles was to change up Tower. Uh, we did it once uh, in Tower 3, uh, which we called. Um, I was there for that. And then that went over so well that marketing came back to us. It wasn't very much longer. It was maybe the, the following year or something. And they said, we want to do more. We want to do bigger. <laughs> so that's when we did um, Tower 4. Um, we didn't, it didn't have four drops. It was just Tower 4. The number was the, a number of the project. It was the fourth time we had iterated on it and that's when we went all out we changed the video we added scent we put the ghosts in the dr drop shaft i mean we did air blasts we did we just went over the top and and we really changed up um all of the what they call a drop profile and there's a really super funny story attached to that if we have yeah. time yeah let's go let's hear it so the drop profile, I worked with a, a, a really good friend of mine. His name is Michael, and he is, among, among many things uh, with the Disney company, he is, uh, at that time, was in charge of ride engineering. And Michael, um, because Tower is basically a program that you program into the machine and the machine, you know, the attraction works that way, he could, without being in the attraction, do a bunch of combinations of how the ride might work, you know, speeds and movement. And he would build all these things in a model, digital model, and then bring them into the attraction. And we can only work in the attraction at night. So it was about 11 o'clock at night till I think it was like five, maybe six o'clock in the morning when it had to be turned back over to uh, operations to get ready for normal operations during the day. That's how we did all the work in tower. It was all overnight. <laughs> That's cool. So uh, on this particular night, Michael comes in with 42 different uh, ride profiles. So the way that the ride moves. Now it could be subtle changes like it's a faster acceleration on this part or a faster you know, drop here, a change, a move, the vehicle stops here. And so 42 iterations like that, right? <laughs> it blows your mind that, that you could get that many. And he was so thoughtful, he brought in clipboards and, you know, papers. And the idea was we were going to, you know, vote for the best things. And and word got out and the and he had the marketing team there and the leadership team from the park. I mean, it was a thing, right? Everybody showed up, you know, we want to be a part of choosing, you know, what profiles are, <laughs> we're going to use. And so uh, we we're like, OK, fine. The ride capacity was, I think, 22 um, guests in a, in a cab. And um, so we filled the cab up, we gave people, we rolled up the sheet so they could hold it, you know, and, and make their notes and stuff. So we got in there and, the, and what nobody realized is that in order to, to, to actually run through the profiles, we started in the, basically the bottom of the drop shaft. For those of you that don't know, there's two shafts, right? When you start, you back up into the lift shaft, lift shaft takes you into uh, the fifth dimension, which then takes you into the drop shaft. So we loaded in what was basically the maintenance bay, 
that way the when the vehicle loaded into it loaded into the um the final position of the drop shaft if that right. makes sense yeah and then literally it would take us up to the top and then we'd go through the sequence and then at the bottom we would make our notes and then we would do that but what nobody realized was that we were going to do that back to back 42 times <laughs> Right. And, and take notes. So, <laughs> you know where this is going, right? <laughs> by the by the end, but you not even by the middle, we were on drop 10 and, and the, the ride was empty. Everybody got off and it, and we, <laughs> and it was just Michael and I, you know, 42 drops in a row. Um, uh, and, and it was it was pretty cool. We had to stop in between, make notes and then do it again. But um, it was that was fun. So we chose the ones that we liked the most. And the rest, as they say, is history. We built an algorithm. Uh, uh, the only part of we in that was that I helped to choose uh, which drops. Michael and the and the very very uh, am amazing folks in the technical world built um, the drop profiles and then how all the timing of everything else took place. And I just have to say, I get this all the time uh, when people ask me about tower. Why in the world did you make it go up on one of the profiles? Right. And um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm actually, that's the one I'm the most proud of because we rode that thing a, a billion times uh, <laughs> before we started the blue sky process. And we called that market research. Now, those of us with a cast iron stomach, it didn't bother us at all. But it was so important to listen to the guests on the attraction. And almost every single time as you're coming through the fifth dimension, and you're about to go forward, everybody would say, okay, here it comes, here it comes, here it comes, get ready, get ready. So they had the entire uh, movement profile and experience mapped out in their heads. So I, I just knew that we had to go up uh, because everybody was expecting it to go down. So on, on one of the profiles, they went up and that was the impetus for, for making it random because everybody had it memorized. So I figured if we built a number of different profiles with all kinds of different effects, and story points that take place, those, uh, you know, and we have a computer that literally randomly selects which one you're going to get. You could ride them back to back and get different profiles. We just thought that would drive the, 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 ha make the guests the happiest, right? I think it, it worked too. It adds so much rewritability to the attraction. It's something that I know that Disney then did with things like star tours where you have 60 plus combinations that you can experience on that attraction right. even going back to indiana jones adventure there was even then a, a combination of a few different elements you could experience in different ways um it adds a lot of rewritability and i love the fact that it does really add the thrill elements you have no idea what you're going to experience yeah. <laughs> it could be i love that even just that that first that first moment up or down is is even in <laughs> itself terrifying you don't know yeah. what to expect it's a dramatic difference in force so it's true, <laughs> it's true. My, my my um my relationship with tower is is long it's great and i love it and the other thing i got to do there which was a lot more t uh well it was creative but it was also technical one of the things um that needed to take place and fans of the attraction will remember this that the attraction opened with a lap bar right the bar would close uh, down against you, like so many traditional attractions. And what we realized is that, it, that we could do it actually safer. So if you remember, lots of the attractions were transitioning to a lap belt, where it had a belt that came across. So to do that, we had to modify the entire cab. And we, in effect, rebuilt, actually redesigned and completely built brand new benches, uh, seats in there. So I had the really great fortune of being asked to do that work. And um, 
pioneered what we call reverse painting, which was a rotational molding uh, process that nobody had ever done before. Uh, so here I was in the middle of Iowa, a little town called Adair, Iowa, in a rotational molding plant, literally in the middle of a gigantic cornfield. And we were, you know, designing and building um, these aluminum molds um, and reverse painting. So reverse painting is basically uh, having an open mold and painting the highlights so it's the colors and the effects that you'll see first with your eyes and then building backwards to the base color, which is, as anybody who's ever painted knows, that's the exact opposite. You usually right. start with base colors and then you scrumble and then you blend and then you shadow and all of that stuff until you get to the highlights. So that's what made reverse painting such a specialized thing. So I just had a blast kind of pioneering that and today on every Tower of Terror attraction in the world um, has my benches. So I was <laughs> quite happy about that. It's a little thing nobody would ever know, but really fun uh, engineering project that we could add a lot of story to. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. I love, I never heard that story before. I knew about the reformatting to being a random system, of course, but didn't get to hear, especially the the 40, 42 variations and having to ride that back to back to back to back. Not a lot of people could stomach that. Um, I certainly couldn't. I, well, I, I was be... a little wobbly. I'm going to be honest, right? Coming out of that, but at, at, for sure. Um, so much fun. Absolutely amazing. Uh, talking about, I guess, um, transitioning from, from MGM studios a bit, I, I could talk about all these attractions all day long, but, uh, Another another place that you got the chance to work was at Hong Kong Disneyland, and I know we we talked a little bit earlier uh, about the differences about working in even a different culture, and yeah. I, I would imagine, especially since this was it wasn't Disney's first park in Asia, but it was Disney's um, first park in in uh, or second park in Asia, uh, first in Hong Kong, the only in Hong Kong. What were some of the challenges or differences about working at Hong Kong as opposed to even working at Disneyland Paris? Absolutely. Well, I think what's uh, the thing that impacted me the most is that I think as an American, even, even if we've, well, you probably would change your mind if you actually visited those parks. But uh, just tagging on to what you said, it, it wasn't our first park in Asia, it was our second park. But the reality is Tokyo Disneyland Resort is made for the Japanese. Right. Very few um, people within Southeast Asia actually travel to Japan for that park, which was a surprise to me. I was just thinking, oh yeah, it's a great park. Japan is an amazing country, let's go there. And it just it just wasn't, it's just not that way. So when Hong Kong was built, it literally was the first kind of Asian park because that park, um, and I believe this is still true today, that park gets a wider variety of international guests than any park in the world. Wow. Um, because if, you, if the only one I, again, this was statistics, um, from several years ago before right. the pandemic and all the craziness. But um, you look at California, that's primarily a regional park. Um, you look at Walt Disney World, that is an international park, but the international is mostly South America, Canada, and the UK. Um, the uh, Disneyland Paris is mostly a European park. And then you move over to Japan, Japanese park, uh, Shanghai, primarily a Chinese park. Uh, there's not a lot of other uh, international uh, travel there. So Hong Kong uh, was that park. And that was really amazing. That was a really cool way to, to tell stories. I mean, we had uh, uh, guests from India, from Russia, from Indonesia, from you know all over Southeast Asia, all the way down to Australia, New Zealand. So creating that park 
that had to, telling stories that had to resonate with such a wide variety of cultural backgrounds. Um, some of those backgrounds very familiar with uh, the Disney culture, uh, the Philippines, uh, of course, Australia, New Zealand, those are um, countries whose people um, really understood that in, in culture, right? Uh, Philippines uh, knows Mickey Mouse, loves Mickey Mouse, um, um, you know, so it, it wasn't new to them. But then you look to other uh, Asian countries, especially China, <clears throat> and especially the mainland, it really was the first um, generation of Chinese to visit a Disney park. And, uh, and I think that for me, that was so amazing. Um, in my role there, I was a, a director uh, for the local team, quote unquote, there. And my my job was to take that team and build them into that sort of um, uh, resort property team, Imagineers, that would be responsible for everything that goes on in that park from a design and a story perspective. And because the property was so new, it was only three years when I got there, you know, um, we're, we're constantly adjusting, right, to, to really make sure that we're tweaking and, and, and ensuring that the experience that we create there is really hitting on all cylinders for everybody that goes there. So that was kind of my role. So in, in one sense, you have all of these um, local people who are behind the scenes, who are kind of deliver, building and delivering the magic. And then you have on the other side of that line, all of the guests who were from all those countries in the world who were visiting. And on both sides, you it was kind of a first. So those of us that were really experienced were in a sense training on both sides of the line, right? right? How to deliver and then how to visit, you know, how to deliver, how to enjoy. And uh, that was a doctorate level experience for me in, in storytelling. And and um, plus the environment there is extremely harsh, uber, uber high humidity, and you're on the ocean. So you've got salt air. I mean, stuff just doesn't last. So we, <laughs> yeah. we, we had to build things. I mean, popcorn carts out of 360 stainless steel, wow. the whole popcorn <laughs> cart, wheels, axles, every screw, everything, 100% 360 stainless steel. Crazy. <laughs> yeah, crazy. These are things Amazing you wouldn't experience. think about. And I have to... Totally. Yeah, you wouldn't think about it, but I, I just, it was the most amazing experience. I just love the Hong Kong people. I love the the spirit, the passion, the the mindset. I mean, you could ride on, a, on one of the trains there. They call them MTRs. It's basically like a subway, but you could eat off of the floor. I mean, I mean, pristine. And you're in the train. And the reason I'm bringing this up is it's, it evokes the sort of, you know, heart of the of the people there there's a sticker on one of the seats that are kind of designed for the elderly or um uh somebody was in a wheelchair uh or mobile mobility limited right and the sign the little sticker says have a happy heart give up your seat for others it it so impacted me after riding you know the rer in paris uh, after riding you know subway systems all over the country all over the world and definitely not having that experience it was just <laughs> like a wow this is so amazing and so different. Yeah, uh, coming from uh, I'm a New Yorker and coming from New York, you do not get that anything close to that on New York subway. <laughs> I would not eat off the floors. Uh, you do not see you'll see people give up their seats occasionally, but uh, yeah. it's it's not uh, not quite the same culture. Different experience. <laughs> Very different. 
Um, well, that's great. I, I can absolutely see that being a different challenge. And I did not know that it was the most international park around the world. That's not something that you hear often. So that's a, a it's cool probably, fact. It's probably not marketed that way. But right. uh, and again, my information may be old for any fact checkers out there. I, I would love it if you if you actually checked in and found out that it was different. But in general, that's the way that the the, the parks were designed. And, you know, when you when you look at things like signage and you, you look at menus, I mean, we had to develop restaurants that were 100 percent halal certified because you had uh, and the Indian population and also um, the Middle Eastern uh, uh, populations were coming and you had to have halal meats, halal prepared um, uh, restaurants, vegetarian restaurants. And it was it was a really cool experience from that perspective, because you're you're adopting uh, adapting rather so many different aspects of storytelling, of design, of business, of operations um, to accommodate this wide range of, of cultural needs. That is pretty cool. <clears throat> um, yeah, I, I could see that would be a lot of fun and very challenging and, and rewarding to, to work on that type of project. And I want to transition a little bit into sure. some of the like the non theme park uh, projects that you worked on. But I want to first take a little detour because there are a couple of things that you mentioned that prompted this that it was another thing I saw. Again, I'm, I'm going to absolutely be plugging your YouTube channel because there was a lot of great <laughs> Thank content you. there. But uh, there was um, there's one one component to one of the videos where you said that imagine you seek to ensure business success, tell great stories, create an emotional connection, and deliver on guest expectations. And I could see Imagineering do all four of those things. Sort of a philosophical question or almost a job interview question. If you were to <laughs> prioritize them or at least think about the order in which you might um, think about those those uh, characteristics in a project, how would you rank or, or sort through those four different ideas? Um, well, that's, that's a, that's a hard thing, right? Because it, it's, I think each person's perspective, uh, in the project would be a little bit different. Your that's client, true. your, your owner operator would probably have a different list of priorities than, than I would suggest. Um, I always try to come at it from the perspective of, um, the, the design firm leader. Um, even, even when I was in Imagineering, I always thought of my project team as the design firm and that the Walt Disney company or the Disney cruise lines or, you know, um, Disney, um, um, Hong Kong, I always thought of them as the client. And I think that this is a really healthy perspective to have, um, because you run into people that don't have that perspective and it, they start to believe that $200 million for the project is kind of your own personal art budget that you can just create what you want right and, and i'm not too many people but some people you know think that way and it's it's unfortunately it's it's um it's an, an error to think that way so my perspective and the perspective i would leave with your listeners is that in every single aspect of the entertainment industry um and i would go so far as to say design in general is related to a human being Right, we don't design cars for raccoons. I know that's silly uh, 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 illustration, but if you did, they would look very different than the cars that we all know. When I say car, it's the same thing with theme parks, um, attractions, shows, events. They're designed for human beings, and there are human beings that visit, and there are human beings that run it. And as designers, we have to keep all of the aspects of what a human needs. Uh, in mind. Um, 
there are humans that run these uh, parks, right? And, and properties. And those businesses need profit. Those businesses need to be safe. Those businesses need all those things. So uh, that, that would be my first thing is you, if you're from any aspect of any project team anywhere, it doesn't matter if you're in finance, in design, creative, delivery, um, you have to think that whatever you're doing, you're delivering this as a part of an experience for the guest. Um, I, I'm a real proponent for story being the mechanism that delivers on brand and business objectives. Um, that's not always a popular uh, thing to say, because I think people think of you know story and you get really excited about it and it's very exciting and it's very, very cool. But if you get focused too much on story and not enough on integrating story as the delivery mechanism, you end up paying, you know, story is just sort of painted on whatever you design. And, uh, and I won't give any examples of amusement parks that do that with attractions that they buy off the shelf, right? Right. They do just paint story on. And that's okay because it's an amusement park and there's not a high level of expectation as a theme park. But don't do that in theme parks, right? <laughs> right. Tell a consistent story. And uh, I don't know if I answered your question well, but I, I think for 23 years with Imagineering, we always, at every stage of the project, we're thinking about the guests. You know, how will this, if we spend this dollar this way, how does it affect the guests? Yeah, and whether or not it, it I think it does answer my question. And, and uh, I also think it's the right answer, in my personal opinion, <laughs> uh, being, being a, uh, you know, a lifelong Disney fan and, a, and a, a fan of Imagineering, but also a business major. There's the expectation <laughs> that you can't just spend money will you know with unlimited budget and expect right. at the end of the day that you're going to get that back um, that's right you know no matter how amazing the experience is you're just not going to always see that back so there is a responsibility in all these different areas there are all different stakeholders um and you have to think about to your point each and every one of them right um but uh of course i also think that they all kind of serve each other yeah. uh you know good business is creating for Disney, creating great stories and <laughs> creating great stories results in great business. Um, That's right. And I, I reason I, I really preach that, I guess you could say yeah. uh, to everybody that I, I talk to is because I think it's a super valuable perspective to keep in mind when you work for the legacy brands like Disney, like universal, I throw Merlin into that category because they're massive. They're so huge worldwide. Um, I, I think your perspective sometimes can get a little jaded because you're in this top tier organization. You work for one client, right? And oftentimes most people don't even think of it as the client. You show up for work and you don't really think about the fact that the money that is spent on you being there, right? The capital expenditure, it's completely dependent on business. Right. <laughs> if they don't do good business, the capital uh, shrinks and you don't build as many attractions. And sometimes people get laid off because of that. Or, you know, once in a lifetime or once in two or three generations, you'll end up with this crazy pan you know, pandemic uh, that has a global shutdown. I mean, nobody alive today remembers the last time that that happened. So right. keeping the perspective that w everything that you do should add value to the business will, will I think, give all new professionals and professionals that are in the industry, the right perspective to stay employed. Because if you, if you add value to a client, um, then they're going to keep you around. That's the, that's the reality. 
Yeah, it's such an important philosophy. And I, I know many listeners are, are nodding their heads yes and in agreement with that as well, because um, it's some, certainly something that I preach <laughs> through the podcast. <laughs> Great. Too. Um, and that, that actually brings me, it's a good transition talking about business and, and transactions a bit uh, to a, a place that doesn't have park admission, but that you have to think about these things as well. And that's Disney Springs. And I think a lot of people were, myself included, really excited when we first saw the unveiling of the model of Disney Springs and v- visiting it in person. It is now like its own theme park. It's it's truly <laughs> a, a, you can spend an entire day there. And I still haven't like the I haven't eaten everywhere. I haven't seen, been to all the shops. I haven't seen everything. Um, so how did you become involved with the uh, the Disney Springs project? It was certainly one of my favorites on your list. Well, thank you. Um, amazing project. I was, you know, uh, I, I should, I, I am honored to have been asked to do it, but that's not how it started. I was uh, actually working in Hong Kong, and at the the day that I got the call, I was in uh, Shanghai long before the the even the the um, uh, approval went through to even build the park. It was it was before that. They were still negotiating uh, the the construction, you know, the partnership and the construction. Right. Um, it was widely publicized, of course, that there was discussions. Um, so I was in Shanghai. It was called the uh, Chinese Theme Park Congress or something like that. It was a big event, multiple days, and um, I went up to kind of represent Disney and storytelling, and I was talking and, and had a keynote at the thing, and I got a call from one of my leaders and. Basically, it was, hey, um, we we need you to to pick up Disney Springs um, literally as soon as this is over at at Hong Kong. And and by the way, how soon can you leave? How soon can you come back to do this? And at the time, I had a whole bunch of plates spinning in Hong Kong. One of them was the uh, launching Imaginations Asia in Hong Kong, which is just like the Imaginations uh, in the U.S. and launching that over there. So I had a lot of stuff going on. So I'm like, oh, I can get back here. And uh, at the time, uh, this leader told me that there were there were quite a few other uh, teams that had kind of pitched solutions uh, uh, for the the challenges for the the, the property uh, downtown Disney, and it just wasn't resonating with leadership. And they're like, he said, you know, you. Well, I'd like you to come down and do this. And at the at the time, I'm thinking, what are you getting me into? Did I who did I make upset? You know, <laughs> why are you putting me in this? You know, and um, there were some really neat things that came together in the company uh, at the same time that I sort of came on board with this. And one of them was Tom Staggs coming on board in that chairman role, and he, I think, very wisely said, you know, our the requirements that we're giving um, uh, to the to the to Imagineering to the company, they're not big enough. We need to look at the solution. Needs to be a holistic solution, not just a Pleasure Island solution, which is what the previous teams were kind of thinking. And it just it just wasn't nailing it on the head because it wasn't big enough. So when Tom said that, it kind of opened the doors to uh, thinking much br- more broadly about solutions and. And I literally got involved at several business trips from from Hong Kong, which, you know, you got to love those 22 hour flights. <laughs> that's, that's a long um, flight. <laughs> you hit the ground and you go st- you know, straight into a meeting, you know, looking, you know, like like you didn't sleep in three days. <laughs> um, 
But so I repatriated to the U.S. to Orlando on a Friday, and then literally Monday was my kind of first official day on the job. And um, and I think it was HR that said to me, well, you had the weekend, you know, to transition. My stuff yes. didn't even <laughs> ship back from Hong Kong. And um, and we had a flight um, Monday night to go to L.A. And uh, this is a story I've told a lot. So your audience may have heard it before. But so I was super excited right here. Uh, you know, business travel, you know, you drop in, you pop in, pop out on stuff on the project. So I was so excited to finally not be distracted with other things and to be 100 percent focused. And um, uh, Monday night we were flying to L.A. So all day Monday we were kind of, you know, uh, working on different meetings, all back to back meetings. And we're on the flight and I look over at, at a friend of mine who's on the project and I said, you know, I'm so excited because Tuesday was this big uh, presentation to all the senior execs. I mean, John Lasseter, you know, Iger, you know, all of our leadership, you know, everybody who who was a leader in the company was in this thing. And I, I look, looked at my friend David and I'm like, hey, this is so great. I'm, you know, I'm so excited. I'm going to get the download on all this stuff. It's brilliant. And he goes, no, no, you don't understand. You're presenting. <laughs> like, Dude, this is day, not even day two, you know? <laughs> so it was, uh, it, it was a, a, you know, out of the frying pan into the fire kind of a thing. And that's really what work at Imagineering is. I think in general within the theme entertainment industry, it's, it is, it, it is extremely dynamic. It's very fast paced. And oftentimes you'll be on projects that you've never done before. I never did RD&E before. Um, and adjusting our storytelling to work on a property that was outside of the berm, so to speak, was a really big adjustment for us. The The whole approach we took was was very, very different. Yeah, I, I can definitely see that. It's, uh, it's certainly a, a different project, uh, especially compared to others. What made the project different than working on a theme park? Or was it very much the same? Uh, no, it was it was very different in a sense. Um, I've found that the the for a, quite a while the company itself um, was a, a bit confused on what it would be, right? Because it it didn't it it was kind of in the model of a uh, Americana at Brand, right? The Caruso property in, in Burbank, in a sense, it's kind of like that—an open air mall of which there's tons all over the country that we benchmark. But because it's Disney, it's really not. It really needs to take on some of the characteristics of of the theme park world and what i mean by that is that what we what we distilled down and was our design approach was that we had to create a place at the end of the day that's really what disney fans uh, expects from disney right story driven place place making when they get there they have to feel like they've arrived at an authentic place um and i think that was that was uh, a lot of time to kind of think through our approach on that. It wasn't a theme park, but at the same time, it wasn't a mall. But it also kind of is a mall because it's got, you know, 90 some odd retail um, and dining tenants and entertainment zones. So I, I think for me personally, uh, as the executive creative director, you know, establishing that vision was the most important part of, it's the most important part of any project. Um, and it's not just my vision alone, but bringing the team together, establishing, you know, the, the core story and then uh, that vision. And then what that happened, what happens then is everybody aligns with that vision all the way through. And, and that was core. And the way that we did that was we said, we can't rely on the standard or traditional Disney design features and motifs that we do in our parks and hotels. 
I can't use Mickey colors. I can't really use three concentric circles. You know, I can't, I, 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 we can't use any of the IP. I can't have the Fab Five marching down the street. We couldn't do any of that because frankly, we had well over, it's probably close to 75% of that property is actually maybe even more represented by third-party brands. Yeah. So when guests got there, we it had to feel Disney. It couldn't feel like 90, 100 different brands. It had to feel distinctly Disney, but it had to be, uh, it had to envelop and celebrate all of the other brands and their uniquenesses as well without creating a record scratch, right? That, that was the really difficult balance of, of how, to, how to create that holistic story feel that was at the same time traditional and uh, uh, I don't want to say old, but uh, broken in, you know, uh, handmade, you know, kind of feel, but, but lovingly restored and then um, beautifully modern you know, and bringing all of that together in a seamless way that just flowed naturally from neighborhood to neighborhood. That was, that was our challenge, frankly. Well, it paid off um, because now that you're talking about it, I can, um, it, 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 the check marks are going off in my head. And that's one of the things I never thought about was you have all these, because you have so many brands being represented other than Disney. It can't just scream Disney um, or at least can't have Disney branding all over the place. Right. Um, but it needs well, to we feel had like many, a Disney place. Uh, sorry to interrupt you, Matt. No, I was just going to say we we had many tenants that that came to us and said, "I'm sorry, we're not going to we're not going to occupy a store space here." And we said, "Well, you know, why not? This is look at the numbers. You know, look at what <laughs> we're doing. We're Disney. It's going to be awesome. You're going to love it. Your guests will love it. You know, your customers." And they said, "Well, look, it's just not going to work for our brand to have Mickey and Minnie, you know, meet and greeting outside of our door." And they honestly thought. You know, Disney, of course, that's what we're going to do because <laughs> right. we didn't have a benchmark. We'd never done this before on this level. Right. And um, so we had to really reverse engineer that and and tell the story that, no, no, we're, that's not what we're about. And um, so that those brands would come. One other point that I was going to make, you mentioned the model and right. very much unlike a traditional theme park um kind of expansion whether that's the whole theme park the a land or or a, you know a couple of attractions or something um it was very different in the sense that we were way way in front of design and way in front of development when we had to pitch if you were if if you will the whole idea the whole story we had to showcase what the end result was going to be like what was the experience um and we had to do that before design was complete and we had to do that in a way that was confidently portraying the end result and um we never really have to do that in any any of our other business models now we have great renderings we have great talking points we we feature amazing talent within the company that come on and talk about what these areas are going to be like but that wouldn't have been enough to get a retail giant to sign on the dotted line or a restaurateur to invest millions in property right so that was another really big change in approach is that creatively we had to make a lot of story decisions a lot of design decisions way early but still tell them in a in an open enough way that would get people excited but that would still give us the leverage to be able to modify as we knew we needed to during the design process 
That's brilliant. I think that a lot of people listening probably now have an even increased appreciation for Disney Springs because <laughs> you take for granted how complicated it can be to work on any given project. And this had an extra layer or two <laughs> to it, or a few extra layers on top of it. So it makes it even more complicated. And uh, yeah, the confidence was there. When I saw the model unveil, I'm like, this looks great. This is, I can see the vision. I can understand it. And uh, nice. I, I, it, it's easy to tell that obviously a lot of the the retailers bought into it as well. Um, yeah, it's been it's like I said, it's one of my my favorite places to uh, to hang out uh, when I'm when I'm down at Disney. So I'm so glad. Well, you know, it's funny people say, "Oh, you worked at Disney Springs," and I said, "Yeah." What's your you know? Would you have a favorite you know place that you like to go hang out? What's you know? What's some of your favorite things? And do you know that more nine out of ten people tell me my favorite part of Disney Springs are the garages. <laughs> and I'm like, you know what? That I, at first I was, you know, fresh off the project. I was like a little bit like, uh, you know, we did, you know, what about the hangar bar? I mean, there's some cool stuff, but you know, as time has gone by and I've looked back at it, that's the highest compliment that anybody on the team could have received because it's, it quite literally was the most functional part of the whole design but we knew we had to represent it in a way that didn't look functional, that looked creative, that looked, um, you know, like a like a urban art project. That was our approach. So the fact that people celebrate that so frequently, I don't know. That I really took that as a shot in the arm <laughs> for the whole team. I I would have never said that. I would have told you Jock Lindsay's as well, or somewhere around that that uh, around the boathouse, wine bar, George, Jock Lindsay's. That trifecta right there is one of my favorite nice. parts of Disney Springs, um, Me too. and the and the marketplace is. It hasn't changed much, but it's still just so classic yeah. and iconic. Um, but that's that's funny. Actually, thinking about it, you're right. If you're if you're driving to Disney Springs, um, although I have to admit, one of the things I really appreciate about it, and I don't know how much involvement you have with it, is the fact that the Disney buses have their own lane now. Because yeah. I remember taking the Disney bus on those peak days when everybody was going to oh, Disney yeah. Springs. Or down to even downtown Disney when it was still downtown Disney, and you would sit in traffic on a Disney bus for forty-five minutes before you, you yeah. know, literally just going down that one stretch of road to make a yeah. left and to get into the parking, uh, not to the parking lot, but to get to the bus drop-off. Right. Well, you know, there's so many lessons, uh, uh, Matt, from Disney Springs. It's quite amazing. I mean, it, it would, we could probably do a whole separate show on that, <laughs> which which might be fun. But we should. Yeah. One thing I'll just say is, and and this goes back to my um, storytelling. <clears throat> piece and then from a design perspective and the, one of the very first things we looked at at Disney Spring Springs was um, what are the challenges right and the the very we, we saw and, and had so many different actually comments directly from guests right they were called verbatims uh, through guest surveys and everything and we compiled them all together into um, a design criteria that we called arrival sequence arrival sequence is so important in what we do in theme parks, attractions, hotels, water parks, et cetera. It's all about arriving to that, right? The queue is a part of that uh, scene one storytelling. So we put that in there. We th and the more that we began to work on um, reducing friction, you know, making it easier to, to, uh, to actually enter, to really beautify that experience, man, we ended up with a huge amount of work, garages, um, Lake Buena Vista Drive um, uh, expansion, bus lanes. We completely moved the entire busing uh, drop-off area, connection to Interstate 4. I mean, we ended up with 
a huge scope that 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 my team actually helped design and we chose all the finishes and and all that stuff for that whole area and uh at lamp posts and signage i mean we did thousands of signs all over walt disney world property to just change the name uh, of it so anyways it, it was such an integral part because it improved the guest experience you know when when it's pouring down rain and you're packing your stroller out of the back of the van it's so much nicer to do that in the parking garage as opposed to in the parking lot when you're getting drenched right oh it's so true uh it, it totally <clears throat> that that i have to agree is um and again like you said we could probably do a whole episode on this um <laughs> but uh it, it's you're right thinking about all those all those fr points of friction um i actually did take over the past summer a couple of disney institute courses and online and one of them actually did talk about thinking about literally from the moment that someone thinks to themselves, I'm going to go do this at Disney to yes. the destination and then leaving what that full experience is like. And you forget yeah. about for Disney Springs or you didn't forget, you remembered and took into <laughs> mind that whole uh, the, the signage, the yeah. experience to get there, no matter your form of transportation, if you're coming on property versus off property, if it is raining like it does every day in the summer, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, getting so I remember true. getting drenched in the parking lot or out in Disney Springs. Um, so Th those are the elements that are that may not be super exciting right it's not the the sexy marketing piece that you get when you look at um imagineering you know you always think of the cool rendering or i'm inventing a new ride and that's amazing it's really cool but it, oftentimes it's the functional aspects of of what we create that really delivers um uh this this perceived value by guests right the seating is really comfortable i can always find a table here i can always find a parking place you know those things that kind of people take for granted because when they're there and it's easy you don't really think about how much effort went into that so i always really try to mentor young professionals to think about that um, because that will make your design really really great so very true um I'm gonna. I'm thinking now. We'll have to do a Disney Springs episode at some point. Might have to bring Sweet. you back for that. <laughs> but please, uh, please do. I would love that. Awesome. Um, the last project I want to touch on, and I have some uh, some other couple quick questions, is of course about Disney Cruise Line because that's another component of Disney that uh, people think about framing their whole vacation around. It, mm. You know, you go to Walt Disney World, you go to Disneyland, you go to the international parks. Um, or you go on Disney Cruise Line, and sometimes you combine the two. But uh, how did you make the transition from, um, you know, or into into Disney Cruise Line? Well, very much like the phone call that I got for um, Disney Springs, it was the same kind of thing. Phone call <laughs> happened, and um, you know, we'd we'd like you to 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 you know think about leading uh, the whole cruise portfolio. Uh, it was a promotion for me. And um, it was a huge job. I mean, existing uh, fleet of four ships, the existing um, island castaway key. And then we obviously knew that we were at the time when I got promoted into the role, it was two ships. It, uh, it quick, it changed to three ships and the schedule didn't change, um, which it's pretty typical. And then of course we were looking at a second destination in the Bahamas. So the, the portfolio as it were was gigantic. We had a, a, um, a dry dock every single year and we that which was in the existing ships and we we always changed something we changed a restaurant we changed a kid's space an adult space so it was excuse me it was constantly constantly changing so for me i love that it was amazing um it was one of those things where 
every single role in my career um, was a new role. I had never done it before. Uh, all the way back to Disney MGM Studios, never really, you know, done that before. And I, I often uh, try to mentor people and say, don't be afraid of that, right? If if it's a new role, um, take the fact that you're 50% terrified out of your mind and you're 50% excited out of your mind, right? Take those two emotions and use them to focus. And um, uh, the thing that, again, I always preach is learn, adapt, and implement. And that's what I had to do in Cruise Line. That's what I had to do at Disney Springs. And at the same time, trying to understand and learn an entire industry. What is the cruise industry? I was a fan. My family and I cruised a whole lot when our kids were little. So I'm very, very uh, familiar with it. But I didn't understand it from a business standpoint in an industry and certainly didn't understand it from a design perspective. So in one year, had to learn uh, the industry, had to learn our business, Disney Cruise Line business. Um, I actually put together a program where myself and other um, uh, members of the Disneyland, uh, Disney Cruise team, as well as members from my own Imagineering team, we benchmarked every major cruise line in the world in every single region of the world uh, that we sailed in. So wow. we wanted to go, uh, it, was, it was over eight cruises, right? And, and although that sounds like an amazingly fun time when you're documenting every inch of the ship and every service and every performance and everything, and you have you know, a thousand pictures and you have four people on board and everybody's documenting and you have to report all of that out. It, uh, it becomes a lot more like work than, than, than fun. Yeah. But so we, we did all, I uh, did all of that in one year and accomplished what they call the GA, which is the general arrangements, the layout of the ship, uh, not just what's happening on each deck, but what box, if you will, what room is next to what room. So all of that in a year. And that, that was amazing. It was, it was very fast paced and, and fun. Plus we had two dry docks, uh, or one, do one major dry dock, the wonder in that year as well. Um, and the cruise industry uh, definitely agreed with me. I uh, had a, an amazingly fun time. It was uh, tons of breakthrough type experiences that we had never done anywhere else. Um, we really modified the ships. There's a lot going on right now. Just this week about the Disney Wish, which is really exciting. Uh, maybe some of your um, listeners have actually seen a lot of the videos that are going out. So I'm, I'm super proud to, to see uh, how the team has taken all those spaces. Um, I was there for four and a half years for all of the team building and infrastructure and initial concept work and, and all the layout and design and all that stuff. And, and um, uh, just amazing. I can't wait till guests are sailing on those ships and, and the feedback and the excitement that I know that we're going to hear because they're, they're really different. The concept art does look incredible. Um, I, I know I've been getting a lot of messages from people saying, have nice. you seen the concept art? I'm like, yes, <laughs> it looks amazing. Uh, yep. Really well done. I love the timing of the announcement and the even the incorporation for the Disney Wish into the Make a Wish Foundation. There's just a lot of really smart decisions that they made. Um, yeah, and uh, concept-wise, it looks incredible. <clears throat> so that's I, I feel like Cruise Line is another another subject we could almost uh, you know like double <laughs> tap true. and dive deep into it. But it's true. Anytime, anytime, <laughs> yeah. Matt. Anytime. Awesome. Um, so a, a few just sort of uh, questions to to wrap up. Um, sure. A couple of fun ones you, you may or may not have been asked before. And then I, I definitely want to talk about the work you've done since. So uh, thinking back, I'll start with the... You, you were talking about mentorship and, and uh, helping people who want to get into themed entertainment and especially design, theme, themed entertainment design, uh, to make that dream come true. One of the things you did mention, again, I'm going to reference your, your YouTube videos, 
uh, is that because <laughs> I like this quote, um, determination and passion will give you a long career in your dream job, which I think is true in honestly any career. Uh, if you if you have the determination, if you have the passion, you can definitely make make that uh, dream a reality. Um, so, you know, my question is, are there any other characteristics that you feel make for a successful career specifically in themed entertainment? Well, I think with any career, I, it kind of goes without saying, and that's probably why I didn't mention it in the video is you got to have skill. True. Um, <laughs> uh, I, uh, and, and I don't mean that in a kind of a cheeky way. I mean that in a reality way where I do have, uh, I've come in contact with people who have said something like, you know, I, I have so many good ideas. You know, I would love to work at Imagineering and just, you know, institute all these ideas. And and I, I gently remind them that nobody gets hired because they have good ideas. You get hired because you have a specific skill that the company happens to be hiring for. And, um, and that conversation generally leads to, well, should I be a subject matter expert in one area or should I be a jack of all trades? And uh, that, again, is a very subjective kind of personal decision. You know, if you are a graphic designer, I'll just pick a pick a discipline or a role and and that's what you love and you're really good at it and you've put your passion and you've put your determination into it. If you do that, you're going to be very, very good at that thing that you love. And if you get hired as a graphic designer, you could then, you know, that's your foot in the door. That's your entry point. Um, but graphic designers have at least in Imagineering, they've grown into art directors, creative directors, they've moved around and and um, been able to do a lot of different things other than just graphic design. And uh, and I think that's the, the cool part of themed entertainment. Um, if you are a person like myself that was probably a little ADD and you never really like to do one thing, you like to do 21 things, um, then being good at lots of different things gives you multiple uh, entry points within the entertainment industry and, um, and, and gives you the opportunity once you're in to really plot your career journey in a lot of different ways. And, and many of those um, categories, um, again, that I talk about in one of my YouTube videos, those uh, discipline categories, you, there are transitions that can be made between those categories and, and you can move around uh, within the organization. But understanding the whole process is really the thing that I try to teach. Even if you just enter as a graphic designer or a writer or something like that, knowing the whole process and every you know um, role that's involved will help you navigate your way in the industry, in your career, right? So I try to give people, students, anybody who's interested, that kind of perspective. Very smart. It's so important to have that skill. And you're right. I get... I get that question a lot too. I'm going to be really. I'm going to be asking folks to go here, and I have to remind people I was not an Imagineer, so I can't really properly answer that question. But I can direct <laughs> you to the right resources, and this will be one of those resources for people to go and listen to. Um, but yeah, it's. Uh, I, I have a lot of ideas. How do I? What yeah. should I do in Imagineering? Well, what are you good at? What are you interested in? Um, you know, you have to have a, a particular skill. Uh, but I, I can't remember. And it's gonna it's definitely gonna hit me when we stop recording but there was an imagineer <laughs> i interviewed who said that you have to be able to um be exceptional in one particular area but able to branch out into others and understand how to you know if, if you're really exceptional at engineering still understanding the artistic side and the you yeah. know show writing and the business side of it and all the other disciplines that that support that that discipline 
That's right. I mean, it's not that having ideas is bad. I certainly right. <laughs> don't want to leave that impression. You just won't get hired because you're an idea machine. Right. If you're an idea machine, um, you know, lean into a specific, a specific discipline, get hired for that discipline, then your ideas have a place to actually take root and to grow. Um, and I think that's that's a really important um, aspect that I, I try to share. Yeah, absolutely important. Um, fun question I want to ask you, and then I want to ask about the work you've been doing since. Uh, I like to ask this question to Imagineers because it's a different way of, of thinking about things. So you've worked on a lot of attractions and you've worked in different areas of, uh, of Imagineering. But if you could go back in time or even present day and work on any one Disney attraction that you didn't work on, what would be an attraction you would say, I would love if I had the chance to be in the developments of this attraction, or it could be a resort, it could be a, a land, Any you could take it any way you want. Yeah, I think there there's a couple of attractions that I think really represent breakthrough uh, technology and experience delivery, and what which I would have loved to have worked on. And one of those is the, um, um, the Temple of the Forbidden Eye, the Indiana yeah. Jones attraction in uh, Disneyland. Uh, you know, what Tony Baxter and the team did there was just so phenomenal. And it would have been really fun to have worked on uh, a project as ambitious and as new as that. The other one, and although I haven't actually been there, I haven't seen it, but everything that I've read, all the videos that I've seen, it, it carries the same kind of feeling. And that's the Pirates attraction in Shanghai. Yeah. So many breakthrough uh, um, technologies and parts of that experience. I, I That would have been really fun to have worked on that, solving those problems and thinking through those things. And then there's there's one property that I, I didn't really get to work um, through my career that I would have really loved to have worked there, and that is in Tokyo. I visited many, many different times, lots of business trips, lots of personal trips there, uh, just because I love the Japanese people and I love the island. Um, but I would have really loved to have worked there at some point in my career. That would have been amazing. Great answers. I can agree with all of them. Um, it would have been <laughs> incredible to work on all three of those. Shanghai's uh, Pirates of the Caribbean is one that I, I mm. hear from those who have visited all the parks and done all the attractions. It's usually between that and Tron Like Cycle Power Run that people yeah. say is their favorite attraction that they've been awesome. on. So. You know, I have to throw Mystic Point in there too at Hong oh, Kong. Yes. That is such a cool ride. And and to, to have been there, seeing it come out of the ground and work with work with the team that was delivering that, um, it, that was super cool too. <laughs> yeah, I, all, all great answers. Um, like I said, <laughs> definitely, definitely uh, I, I would want to be behind the doors of all of them, but that's uh, some, yeah. some great ones that you mentioned. Um, so talk to me a little bit about what you've done in the last few years, because you've sort of extended beyond Imagineering, you've done consulting, and you also... You know, I referenced your YouTube channel and that kind of teases out the designer's creative <laughs> studio. Um, so talk to me a little bit about some of the work that you've been doing and what inspired you to go that route. Sure, sure. Thank you for the opportunity. Um, I, I always like to tell people because I'm, as we were talking before uh, we started recording, you know, that the themed entertainment industry, people who work in that industry gain such a broad range of skills, um, not just you know, storytelling, not just creative, but it's it's synergistically tying all that together. And I, I always try to tell people that because people that are in the industry have the opportunity to bring those skills and experience to many other markets and many other industries. And at a time like COVID, when a lot of people are affected uh, in their employment, yours truly, um, 
you know, you have those skills and those abilities and you begin to think to yourself, how do I use those in another way? So my last day with the company was December 22nd. And on January 1, I launched my company. And I, I again, mentioning uh, that I like doing lots of different things. I wasn't satisfied with just doing one thing. Um, I am a creative leader. My whole 30 years in in theme parks and film and everything has been in, in that creative leadership and design leadership role. So um, I moved into uh, teaching. So I guest educated a couple of different universities, um, helping to create curriculum for another university that's creating a, an undergraduate and graduate degree program in themed entertainment design. So I'm super excited about that. Um, I created uh, some of my own learning content, uh, you know, while I was on furlough for seven months, it was the most cathartic thing of all is to think through how would I tell people about what I did and, and how could the next generation, you know, benefit from my experience. So as I began to unfold that, I literally put it into a eight session, five hour course that's on my website uh, called how to work in themed entertainment. And um, so I kind of offer those things. I have a coaching service that I mentioned before for where it's not really executive coaching, although I do coach a lot of executives, um, uh, students, uh, professionals in the industry, just, you know, it's so hard to get access to people with experience in the industry, especially at sort of a senior executive level. So I, I just established a way for people to do that. You go to my website, you can, you know, schedule the time, make the purchase, and then just, you know, hang out and we can we can talk very specific about your, your career objectives, the journey that you've been on, where you want to go. I have a lot of fun talking about people's strengths and how those things can apply uh, within um, the themed entertainment industry or a, a, tangential, a tangential industry as well. We do a lot of that kind of talking. And then I also do um, speaking keynotes, um, quite a lot of workshops and, and being able to come and educate not just um, uh, corporations, but associations and, and, and in people outside of the industry. That's honestly the, the most fun that I have is people that are outside of themed entertainment. And then, of course, I consult. I do um, all the way from just um, uh, advisory consulting uh, all the way through to uh, brand work, design work, um, leadership. Um, so try to kind of run the whole gamut here. It's only second quarter uh, for my business to be up and running, but I'm so excited to have the freedom that uh, the designers creative studio offers me and, uh, and being able to offer that to others has been a real, a real joy, honestly. I know it's something people look for, and uh, especially when it comes to answering that question of how do I get into themed entertainment? It's such an important question that people have in their minds. This is, you know, it is it is hard to get in touch with the people who have done this before. Um, yeah. You know, even for me through a podcast, I'm, I'm constantly trying to reach out to all these people. I'm like, how do you contact them? How do you get in touch with them? Um, and uh, so it's great to have that resource available to say, I can help guide you. You clearly have the yeah. experience and the the knowledge and the ability to do that. So, um, right. I do quite a lot useful. of things uh, uh, internal for groups as well uh, that are, you know, just that are free. It's just a part of being a part of the group. So if you just go to my website and subscribe, uh, it doesn't cost you anything. You're on the, you'll have access to my blog. You, I do a, a monthly newsletter where I oftentimes hide discount codes and all kinds of fun stuff for, for those products that I offer. And then I also do a uh, once a month, we get together uh, as a studio community and we just have a webinar. It's a free webinar. I just did one last night. 
uh, had somebody all the way from Beijing that called in on the uh, Universal Project there, which was awesome. Wow. And then I also do the exact same thing with my uh, Facebook group. I have a Facebook group called the Imagineering Insider. And we do a Facebook room every month. Um, a lot of people that are not in the industry are on that are in that group. But there's also a lot of my friends from inside the industry. So we end up with some really great conversations. Um, so, anyways, I always try to promote that and and give. I like being able to to give back to the industry. My YouTube channel is really kind of all about that, trying to give lessons for people uh, that encourage them and 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 help them in their career journey. I'll be linking to all those places for everybody to check out. So if you're listening, you're curious, just check out the links in the show notes. You'll be prompted to go right there. Um, Sweet. But that's uh, amazing stuff. So um, Theron, I, I know we could have spoken for a lot longer. Like I said, <laughs> I think we found a couple of areas to maybe to maybe dive into a little deeper in the future. But I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today and share all these awesome and honestly new stories for me about, <laughs> about some Fantastic. of these projects at Disney. Excellent. I had such a great time. I really appreciate you reaching out. Um, like we always said, Imagineers love to talk about this kind of stuff because, you know, that's the whole reason we started to begin with was we, we absolutely love the process. We love the people and we love the guests. We love to do things that really uh, surprise and delight people. And with that, we close out episode 106 of the Imagineer podcast. I want to give a very sincere thank you to Theron once again. Theron, I know you're out there listening for coming on to the show and sharing all these incredible stories about your time at Walt Disney Imagineering. I had an absolute blast chatting with you. And as we talked about a couple of times or hinted at, we'll definitely have to have you back to dive a little bit deeper into subjects like Disney Cruise Line and Disney Springs. I had so many more questions I wanted to ask. In any case, I want to turn this conversation over to you and first to remind you to definitely check out Theron's website, social media profiles, and more. I have the links to all that in the show notes of this episode, which you can also find over at Imagineer Podcast. Cast.com. Turning the conversation over to you, I want to know which of Theron's creations or contributions to Walt Disney Imagineering is your favorite. You can send me your answers and feedback as always in so many different ways. You can, of course, reach out to me and follow Imagineer Podcast on social media. I do personally manage each and every social media profile, including on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and LinkedIn at Imagineer Podcast on Twitter at Imagineer News. And you can also join our Facebook group, The Imagination, also called The Imagineer Podcast, Disney fan community, to talk about this subject and all things Disney with me and with other listeners of this podcast community. And if you want to send me an email directly, you can reach out at matt at imagineerpodcast.com. And Matt is spelled with two T's, M-A-T-T, at imagineerpodcast.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, what are you waiting for? Make sure to hit that subscribe or follow button, whether you're listening to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, or any other podcast app. Hitting subscribe or follow will make sure that you're the first to know when new podcast episodes become available. We roughly do one every two weeks, but I like to throw in some bonus episodes or two-parters now and then, so that'll ensure that you never miss an episode. And if you have 30 seconds to leave us a rating in Apple Podcasts, 
hits. That does a lot to help us out. We have over 500 five-star reviews. Thanks to all of you out there who have rated the show. It certainly has pushed me to keep this show going, to keep improving, and as Walt would say, to keep moving forward. So I am so grateful to all of you who have reviewed the show before. But if you haven't yet, make sure to leave a rating in Apple Podcasts and a review. I do read each and every review that comes into Apple Podcasts, and I'll often share them out to my Instagram and Facebook stories. If you'd like to take your love of Imagineer podcast to the next level, you'll definitely want to look into our Patreon group, which is over at patreon.com slash Imagineer podcast. If you love all the free content that's out there between the podcast and social media, I try to do 10 times as much with our Patreon group. Maybe not 10 times as much, it's not fair to say, but I definitely put a lot of energy into our Patreon group. It's a wonderful community of supporters who financially support the show and in return get exclusive perks, benefits, and rewards. Things like exclusive access to a private Facebook group, plus my close friends list on Instagram where I'll post. If you like those polls and quizzes I've been doing, I'll often do bonus ones just for Patreon members that have access to my close friends group. We do weekly Disney Plus watch parties, which I've actually done even more than that in May for uh, Star Wars. And uh, we also do bonus podcast episodes. You can get uh, access to my podcast production notes, early access to all podcast episodes, There are so many benefits to enjoy that I often forget everything on the list, but you can check them all out and what's currently available because these are subject to change depending on when you're listening back to the show by going to patreon.com slash Imagineer podcast. And thanks as always to all of our Imagineer podcast Patreon members. And the best thing you could do for the show is very, very simple. And that's just to share it. Whether you share this episode the episode as a whole, or the podcast as a whole, I should say, uh, any post on social media or anything else that you do to support the show by sharing it with friends and family. I do see every time you tag me in particular, but I appreciate whether you tag me or not, you sharing the word about Imagine Your Podcast. I also want to encourage you to check out our partners. Definitely look into the Kingdom Insider if you're looking for reliable Disney news. You can find them at thekingdominsider.com and The Kingdom Insider on your favorite social media channel. I love that they report the news in a very fair and balanced way. They off, they don't go out there and just share news that isn't even confirmed yet. They will confirm with Disney so you know that whatever they share is what Disney has announced, which I appreciate. And they can definitely give you some tips and tricks to make the most of your next Disney vacation and make you aware of new ways that you can bring the magic of Disney into your own home. So again, check them out at thekingdominsider.com and The Kingdom Insider on social media channels. And the next time you're ready to book a vacation to Walt Disney World, Disneyland, Disney Cruise Line, Adventures by Disney, Aulani, or any other Disney destination, so glad that most of these are back and up and running, uh, you can definitely look into our travel partner and should look into our travel partner which is Mickey Vacations by Academy Travel. Academy Travel is diamond earmarked. That is the highest level of distinction that Disney bestows upon travel agencies. They're one of the top three agencies for booking Disney vacations. They can help to alleviate all the stress and guesswork of planning out your next trip to any of these destinations. And the best part is they do this at no charge to you, which is awesome. So you can get some professional 
advice on really planning out your trip and make the most of your next Disney vacation. Plus, they're aware of all the available discounts and can share how you can even save some money on your next Disney vacation. So I encourage you to give them a shot. You can request a free quote. There's no obligation by clicking on the links in the description of this podcast episode or simply go to imagineerpodcast.com. Click on that travel drop down and that'll take you to, if you click on any of those destinations, it'll take you right to the form to fill out. And uh, you can do it on a mobile device or on desktop, wherever you are. And they'll get back to you as soon as possible with a free quote. Again, there's no obligation. Last but not least, I want to encourage you as always to go after your hopes, your dreams, your goals, whatever you have in mind. You never, be- you can never believe how much until you actually start. How starting is really the most difficult part, but once you start doing it and putting out there what it is you want to do, it's amazing how all these things seem to fall into place. Even with the failures and bumps along the way, which everybody's familiar with who uh, has set out on their own, and the same is true for even Walt Disney himself. Uh, you know, even despite those obstacles, there's always, if you keep moving forward, a path to success. And as long as you enjoy the journey, that truly is the part that you are going to love the most. So go after your hopes and dreams. And remember, as always, that inspiring quote from Horizons. If you can dream it, you can do it. Thank you so much for listening to the show. And we'll see you again in a future episode of the Imagineer Podcast. something to the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror. More terror. The new Twilight Zone Tower of Terror. Fear every drop at the Disney MGM Studios.